Hey, would you pray with me this morning? Father, we come. And it is with open hearts that we come to worship you. We come from different places. We've had different weeks, Lord. We've uh, some good, some bad, some indifferent. We come all the same at this moment in time to worship you and to hear from your word. If you don't speak, God, we perish. Our souls need a word from you. So as we open the bread of life, your word, we pray you'd speak truth to us. We pray that we would not be, not be distracted, but we'd be open to what you have, God. So we open our hearts to you. We open our minds to you. We open ourselves up, and we want to obey God. So help us to obey. Help us to trust. Help us to understand what faith is. You are so good to us, Lord, and it is in that goodness that we come. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know anybody who likes tests. You might be one of those people who are like, yay, standardized testing. i got to fill in some bubbles with a number two pencil. That may be you. If that's you, God bless you. You may be the only person in this room. But for most of us, when you hear a test is coming, a little bit of anxiety is raised. If you think back to school days or if you think about a medical test, you think about any number of things. I want you to know something. Most of the time, the reason the tests happen, and I found this out from my educator wife, is tests are indicators of where you are. And God puts people to the test. He doesn't tempt people, but God tests faith. And I want to argue this morning, it's right and good that he does this. We've been looking at the life of Abraham, and in Genesis chapter 22, we pick up with this. This is a holy story, and this is one of the major stories in all of the Old Testament that point to Jesus, and I want us just to, to settle down in Genesis chapter 22 for a little bit. It's in the front part of your Bible. It's the first book. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. If not, it'll be on the screen for you, so you are in luck. You with me this morning? Everybody all right? All right, let's start. Genesis 22, 1 says this. After these things, God tested Abraham. So when I talk about tests, here's the reason. The Bible, if you're reading the Bible and you see something that starts off a passage and it says something about what the whole passage is going to be about, you need to kind of underline it. So the whole point here is, and it begins the narrative, God is testing Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. Verse 2, he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And at that point, he's probably like, say what? Because he had waited 25 years for Isaac to come. Secondly, we know the Lord. One of the commandments is thou shalt not kill. What is happening? Verse 3, Abraham rose up early in the morning saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and he arose and he went to the place that God had told him. You notice something? When we start out this series in Genesis chapter 12, God just shows up and speaks and said, Abraham, I want you to leave this country, and I want you to go to a place I'm going to tell you. And Abraham does. 
We have a mirror of this that began the story of God and Abraham together and walking by faith in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 22 mimics that story or mirrors that story. And so he says, I want you to go to this mountain that I'm not going to tell you where it is. I want you to do something difficult. Because he had to do something difficult in Genesis chapter 12. He had to leave his whole family. And now he has to take his son, his only son, the one whom he loved. That's what the Bible says. And he has to take him up there to a place he doesn't know, on top of a mountain he doesn't know, to bring the son and to kill him. It's a big ask. That's not like a cup of sugar. That is like your whole life there. It's like your neighbor coming over and being like, can I have $150,000? Verse 4, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. Verse 5, that Abraham said to the young man, hey, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. There's some faith here because he believes he's going to come back with his son. So he leaves those men in verse 6, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. So Isaac's holding the wood as they go up the mountain. Now, you remember, Abraham is old. He's in his 90s. So it's good to have the young, strong back. And we probably, 12 to 15 is where... Isaac would be. Hold the wood. Let's go. And it says this in verse 6. He says, And he took his, took his hand in his hand, the fire and the knife, the flint and the knife. And so they went both of them together. Verse 7, Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Behold the fire and the wood. But where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Imagine there's some nerves here for a second. We got the wood, got the fire, we got the knife. Where's the offering? Where's this animal that we have to offer? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb of a burnt offering, my son. And so, so they went, both of them, together. They get to the top of the mountain in verse 9. And when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there, which is just taking wood, and he builds it like something that would be is a burnt offering. So he builds kind of a campfire thing. It would probably have been kind of square or rectangular, and that, that's what he built using the wood that they had brought. Abraham built the altar there, and he laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, I want you to know something. Isaac is probably between 12 and 15, 16 there's no struggle. There's a trust of a father here, and he lays down, and he's tied to the altar. There's a couple reasons why he's tied. I don't think he was trying to get away, although that would <laughs> could happen, but we don't notice the struggle is not mentioned here. It could be that Abraham was afraid that he might miss, and he wanted Isaac to have a quick death because he, at this point, is thinking this is what God is calling him to do. Verse 10, and Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. This is a really wild image. Verse 11, the knife's in the air, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, remember what his name means, father of a multitude, father of a multitude. Remember, this kid is the only heir to all the promises of God. And he's taking the knife up and he's about to stab him. This kid was in waiting for 25 years and he's a miracle because they were both super old when they had him. Abraham, 99, Sarah, 90. Old. And as the knife was coming down on all these hopes and dreams, 
and promises. God calls out, Father of a multitude, Father of a multitude, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. I'm right here. And God said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham, he lifted up his eyes and he looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. That was probably the best he had ever heard in his life. You're welcome for the goat sound. And Abraham went and he took the ram and he offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son, in place of his son, in substitute of his son. Verse 14, so Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. You know why? Because the Lord did provide. And as it is said, unto this day on the mount, the Lord shall be, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Verse 15 says this, and the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven, and he said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your, your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens and as the sand that is on the seashore and the, your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And Abraham returned to his young men and they rose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived there in Beersheba. And so the culmination of the Abraham's story happens with this when he is about to raise the knife and kill his son and God says, nope! Now I know you trust me. You wouldn't hold anything back from me. And Because of that, I'm going to renew my promises with you and these promises will be true. I'm going to make your name great. And th through his line comes Jesus and through Jesus comes a multitude of sons who believe and by faith are sons, of, sons and daughters of God. God has kept his promise, but he does it through a test. Now, I want you to know a few things. First off, a test is not a temptation. Let's say that together. A test is not a temptation because here's the, what the Bible says, and we know clearly about the character of God. James 1, 13 through 15 says, Let no one say that he is tempted when he is tempted. I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So the Bible is really clear that God doesn't tempt anyone. And I want to make it clear, a clear difference between a temptation and a test, because here's what happened. God tested Abraham. God tempts no one. A temptation is different than a test. I'll give you some examples. It's different in its goal, because what, what is the goal of a temptation? To get someone to falter, to sin, to do wrong. God is holy. He would never do that. And so it's the difference. A temptation and a test are, are two different things. Let's say you are on a diet, and you go, and somebody has, like, you go to their house, and they have laid out pies and cakes and pizza and all this kind of stuff, and they're eating it in front of you like going, this is so good. Okay? And they're just like going to town or whatever your thing. Maybe pizza's not you. Maybe you're a taco person, okay? You're like, oh, tacos, okay? South of the border. And 
that person has put that there to sabotage you. Okay? That's different because what, what is their intention? They want you to eat like them and to, like, to go off your diet and to become a glutton and to just oh, shovel it in. But let's say the Super Bowl is next weekend. And you go over to that party, you're still, you're working out, you're eating right, and you show up at somebody's house, and they got the little meatballs and the barbecue sauce. I'm sorry, I'm talking about this right before you go to lunch, okay? Everybody's going to be like, okay? You got the little meatballs and the barbecue sauce, and they got the pizza there, and they got all the things, okay? They do have a veggie tray, so you're excited, okay? You're like, I can keep it, okay? But the test comes, they're not trying to tempt you. What is their purpose? To have a good time, it's a party, Temptation and trials are different because of the intention. God is holy and good and just. He has shown himself to be holy, good, and just throughout the Scriptures, and especially in Abraham's life. There's no reason to think God would want him to falter and stumble. God is holy, 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 perfect. He does not want anybody, but God does test because tests have a purpose. God is working in tests and trials. And so God's goal in a test and a trial are not the same as a temptation. A temptation is something to get you to give in to your desires. For it's, it's intended for you to stumble and fall. That is not God. So then we ask this question, why does God test our faith? I can't give you definitive answers, but I can give you some from the Scriptures. The first one you can see in, in, in is that God gives us, faith, gives us these tests to grow us. Now, see, this is not the first test that Abraham has, okay? He's got a lot of them, okay? This is the final and probably the biggest test to sacrifice his own son. I can't even just get my mind around that. That is hard to even think about. I have a five-year-old little boy, and I can't imagine that this only son I have, I can't imagine having to be told that I had to, to kill him, let alone him being not just being in the earth, but I had to kill him. I can't just even get my mind around that. But before that, God tested Abraham in so many ways, and, one, and a couple times he failed. Do you remember if you go back, if you, this is great stuff if you want to check this out, in Genesis chapter 14, he goes into Egypt, and, he, and he's afraid when he goes into Egypt because his wife apparently is like, even, she, even in her 60s, she's like super fine, okay? That's not in the Bible, but basically she's like, Sarah's good to look at, okay? And that's like, if, in, in my trans, I was like, she's dope, okay? So she's a good-looking good looking lady, and so what he does, they're going, the Egyptians are going to try to, like, to take her as their wives, and that's not going to be good. They're going to kill me to have her. And so you know what I'm, we're going to do? You're going to pretend to be my sister. Yes, that's in the Bible. <laughs> and he, that, that's what he does. This is my sister. God brings plague on Egypt. It's bad news. His faith faltered there. We see another situation. Remember that? They don't have kids for a long, long time. They're about 14, 15 years in the promise. And the, the kid's not coming. Isaac's not being born. And so Hagar, they see her there. She is, she's a servant to Sarah. And Sarah says, I got a plan. Let's go in. Let let." let Abraham sleep with Hagar, and they'll have a kid, and that'll be our heir. And so what happens? Fam they have baby mama drama. And it even happened in chapter 21. It's all throughout. They bring this sin, and they bring it all in, and they have this messed up situation. So faith falters. But remember, true faith never fails. So keep returning to the Lord, and God has kept his promises. They keep trusting God, even when it faltered. And now they get to this penultimate promise. And here is something James says. I want you to see this. This is James 1, 2, and 4. It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kind, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So God uses 
testing and trials to produce in us steadfastness, which means stick to which means we don't falter in our faith. We don't fail in our faith. We might falter, but we keep coming back. We repent and we come back and we trust the Lord. And through that, what, is, what does James say? And let steadfastness have its full effect that you might be perfect and complete, lacking nothing, that you might be competent, that you might be mature. And that's what we see here with, with oh, excuse me, sucked in a bug, I felt like. <laughs> Sorry. I'm getting a little jazzed, all right? When you see Abraham live in this, you see a progression and a maturity of his faith. So God grows us through tests in ways we wouldn't grow otherwise. And we've talked about this before. But I also note this. Why does God test us to grow us, but also God tests us to show us? And particularly show us where we are. For example... You ever taken a test and you thought you had it down? Like you're like, I got all these facts and information in here. I'm ready to take this test and put it on the page and somebody give me an A plus. Getting I'm like you're leaving, getting a high five. It's kind of like the Christmas story where Ralphie writes the essay and he's the A plus plus plus. Okay, that's a little obscure. But you know what I'm talking about. When you're just I got this thing and you sit down and question one on the test is like, is this the right class? Am I in the wrong room? Question two is like, why is this about the periodic table? I thought this was English. And you're like, what is happening? And before long, you know you are utterly <laughs> going to fail this thing. And it showed you where you were. You thought you had it all down, and you didn't. I never forget, I thought I was a pretty good basketball player. And compared to some people, I, I'm Okay. When I was in high school, man, I thought I was a baller, shot caller. I mean, I thought, I mean, I could just put them up there. And we went and played with the high school basketball team one night. They came to our gym and played with us, and they ruined me, okay? Stealing the ball, swatting the ball. I thought I was something until I was tested, and I was like, I can't do that. Tests show us where we are. Tests are assessments of where we are, and in doing so, we get to encounter who we really are in our faith. I'm going to ask us some questions, because in this, we look at this passage, I think that's what's going on there. God is showing Abraham where he is and seeing where Abraham is in his faith. And so we see, I want to ask you a couple questions to ask to discern where we are, to show, that test show us where we are is this. Do we love the gift or the giver? Do we love the gift or the giver? Look in, if you with me, in verse 2. He said, and he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there a burnt offering as one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. I want you to notice something, the way the Bible describes Isaac. He says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Do you think... Abraham needed to be reminded who Isaac was. That's like, Matt, take your son, Judson, your only son, the one you love, with you. If my wife said that, I'd have her checked into a, a hospital. I thought she was having some problem. Because why? If she said, my son, I only have one son, so what am I going to do? Take that one. I know who it is. So do you think for a second that there is a play here? Absolutely there is. There's something at work in this text, and it's wanting to show... 
Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. I want you to pinpoint out, and he's going to, in this description of calling him out, it's describing who he is. And here's the thing. Ishmael is also Abraham's son by Hagar. Remember I told you that whole story. He has just, in chapter 21 of Genesis, he is gone. He is sent on his way. God's going to bless him still because Here's the thing. He was born out of a sinful choice, but he's not a sin. I want you to hear that real quick. This is just free. A child who comes about by a sinful choice is not a sin. They're made in the image of God. And God blesses Ishmael. And so he's blessed, and he's sent off, and, and he, God makes a nation out of him because God is faithful to his promises, and he honors the dignity of humans whom he created in his image. We see here he is, all of his hopes, all of his backup plans are gone. And now he says, I want you to take your son, your only son, and do this. Now, remember, Isaac has all these promises connected with him from Abraham. God said, I'm going to make you a nation, and all these people all throughout are going to be blessed through you. And so there's these huge promises associated with him. And you can imagine this. Can you imagine waiting for a child for 25 years? Actually, they had been waiting for a child for 100 years because they, they, had, they were that old. At least Abraham was. And they finally got him, and they named him. He laughs, okay, which, which we know is a play on words because they laughed like, oh, we're so old. How can we have a kid? Then they had a kid, and the laughter, Isaac's name means he's laughing. He laughs, and they were laughing because of joy. And now to lay your joy on the altar and all these promises and all these things, it really is a test here. Does, God, does he love the gift or the giver more? And we are always facing that because we can see gifts on this earth and God is unseen. We know his effects. We've seen them work and we've seen his spirit move, but he's not right in front of us. And we are constantly in this battle between loving the giver or the gift. It can happen in any way. We, we can love money more than God. We can love Sex and the immediate pre- pleasure it gives more than God. We can, and, and we can show that by not doing it in the proper confines and, and by his word. Any number of things, can we can love that more than we can love the giver. And I want you to know something. God is better than the best thing in your life. And God would be doing you a disservice if he let you find more favor in what he gives you than him, because he, in him is the highest of joys, the most eternal of joys, and in him is life abundant forever. And so with Abraham, he is saying, take what's precious and lay it down and give it to me. Do you love me more than the gift? And this gift is precious. And in a test, God has this way of reminding us what is the most important, and it's him. God would be doing you to disservice if he lets you be satisfied with something small. C.S. Lewis said it the best. Talked about how easily we are satisfied. He said, we're like kids that are playing around with sex and drugs and alcohol. We're like a kid sitting in a mud puddle playing. Have you ever seen a kid playing a mud puddle? They can have a lot of fun. 
And you, and I've seen kids playing mud puddles that you're like, I hope that's mud. <laughs> right, Mitch? <laughs> that's free. I've seen, I've seen and I heard about that. We're like these kids that are playing in the mud puddle in a slum when a day at the beach is available. That's the difference between the two. The best things on earth are slum, are slum mud puddles compared to knowing God. That is what, what we have here. Even the preciousness of his son, God is greater. And so in tests and times, we get to evaluate and see clearly, do we love the gift or the giver? Secondly, tests show us and ask this question, do we trust God with what's most precious to us? Look with me again in Genesis chapter 22, verse 5 through 10. It says, And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I will go over there and worship and come again to you. Remember, he believes that God, whatever God's going to do, I is coming back. That's what that verse, I'm going to come, we're going to come again to you. And Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering and said, and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took him by his, took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they both of them together. And Isaac said to Abraham, his father, my father, he said, here I am, son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb of a burnt offering, my son. So they both went with them together. In verse 9, it says, and when they came to the place of which God had told them. Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took his knife to slaughter his son. In doing this, Abraham is trusting that trusting God with his most precious possession. Note this, when he leaves the, when he leaves the men, and we just read it in the passage, when he leaves, he says, we're going to come back to you. In the book in Hebrews that, that, we, that Taylor read right before we, we started into the sermon, we know that he believed that Isaac would be, either, if he was killed, he'd be raised. He believed that God was going to keep his promises, that Isaac was going to be this chosen son. And so what he did was he believed God, even though his understanding failed him at this point. He built the altar. He laid his son there. He bound him. He raised the knife. And he says, God, I trust you with most, what's most precious to me. You can have it, because I know you're going to do right by me. I don't know what you're going to do. I don't know if you're going to raise him, but I know we're going to come back together. You made these promises, so I'm going to raise the knife, and I'm going to plunge it down. If that's what i got to do to show you that I trust you, this is so precious. You remember Abraham, he, ro- I, he rose early. I imagine he rose early because he had a sleepless night the night before. I think we can imagine that. Then he had a three-day journey. And we have this hesitation which is obvious in the text, as he raises the knife before the angel of the Lord calls out. It says, wait. At that moment, he is trusting God with what is most precious to him. As Abraham was willing to lay his most precious son on the altar and raise a knife to it because he believed God. And I want to tell you this, if God is, if the gift, if the giver is better than the gift, and God is better than the best thing, then He is trustworthy enough to give Him our most precious things. He really is. 
I can think of many of examples, but I can take one. I took some kids to New York City in 2011 um, on a mission trip, and we went all over the city. We rode the subway everywhere. We went to really dangerous places in most people's minds. We hung out in Harlem at the soup kitchen down there. We went to where the bus lined in in the Bronx, and that's real nice. And so we went off through Brooklyn. There was one point where a very angry Jewish man spit into one of our folks' face, it was a very interesting, wild time, and one of the guys who's a banker and a risk analysis person comes up to me, and he says, you guys are going to New York. Are you going to take any protection with you? And I wasn't trying to be glib, but I just said, yeah, Jesus. And he was like, I was hoping Smith and Wesson, okay? I mean, like, he's talking, and I didn't mean this, but... If you want to hold on so tightly to your kids that you don't give them to Jesus, by all means do that. But you're missing out. Because they're not yours anyway. They're his. Everything, if we are his, he doesn't, he says, take up your cross, take up your cross and follow me, Jesus would say. You have, it's all or nothing. You're all in or you're all out. And if he's good and he is trustworthy, then you give him everything and you say, here, even my most precious things. God took me to a place of super wounded brokenness before I came here. And I had to get to the place where God he never, never spoke to me audibly, but through his word and through his spirit, I was sensed this. If I didn't lay down my desire to be a career pastor, I'd never be one who followed him. And that was so hard because my whole identity was wrapped up in preaching and being a pastor. And God took all of that, and he wanted me to lay it at his feet. And it's a daily thing. You say, all that I have is yours. My money, my cash, my plans, everything has to be yours. The most precious to me, where I'm headed, it has to be yours. Open hands. And it's not until the test comes that we get the opportunity to really look at those things. Because if we're, if we're fat, dumb, and happy, do you guys, did you see that video on Facebook where the lady was talking about the snow days? She's like, what you going to do? And she's like, eat pastries and dessert and, and get fat and sassy. Okay, that's how else we want to live. We want to eat pastries and desserts and be fat and sassy. And when that happens, nothing good, I mean, rarely good things happen. You don't grow in those, those seasons. You might grow this way, but you don't grow in faith. And these test times, they make us say, God, do I trust you with my most precious thing? Do I trust you with my life plans? Do I trust you with everything? I'm going to give up something to follow you. Do I trust you that you're better than the thing I'm going to give up? Is that it? Do I trust you with what's most precious to me? Do I trust you with my kids? Do I trust you with my finances? Do I trust you with my life? Do I trust you? If I do, then your way is better than mine. What you say goes. And Abraham is the epitome of this. At the altar, we have a physical representation of his complete surrender and faith that God will do right by him. Because he says, if, if we're gonna, he told the two young men, we're coming back. Hebrews talks about it. He believed that God would even raise him if he had to kill him. 
So do we love the gift or the giver? Tests show us, do we trust God is most precious? That Do we trust God with what's most precious to us? And then we ask the question, do we trust God to provide? In verse 8, Abraham, when, when Isaac said, hey, Dad, where's the sheep? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went up together. And if you switch over to verse 10, we have Abraham putting Isaac, and at this point, Isaac's going to be the offering. Verse 10, Abraham reached out his hand, and he took his knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he said, here I am. And, and he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Verse 13, and Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he looked, and behold, there was a ram. And the way the Hebrew is kind of constructed, and we, we lose it in English, it's almost like the ram has just gotten caught. Like it wasn't there when, we, when, they, when he went on the mountain. It wasn't there when he tied him up. But then all of a sudden, at this point, at the crisis moment, at the last second, as the knife's about to go down, Abraham stopped, and all of a sudden this ram's walking by, and it's got its head stuck in the thicket with the horns. That's the idea in the Hebrew. So God answers this right here. So, what do you do? so, so there's a, there, Isaac was on the altar. God said, stop. And then God provided a ram to take the place of his son. And so he's caught in the thicket. Abraham went and he took the ram and he offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son, in place of his son. And so what did Abraham call this place because of that? Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. Why? Because his son was on the altar. But God provided this ram at the last second, probably got caught just as this was happening. And this ram takes the place of his son. And most of the time, our worst decisions are based on fear. You ever made a good decision out of fear? Just think about that for a second. You ever done that? No. Panic. Okay? That's why they do fire drills. Because they didn't, and all of a sudden it was like going on. People be throwing stuff through windows. Woo! Fire! Not too long ago, somebody who should be fired in Hawaii sent a missile alert out to everyone. What an idiot. Nobody knew. People were putting kids in a sewer. That's crazy. I mean, I thought I'd do the same thing. You don't practice those. We had since like Russian Cold War days. Get under your desk like that was gonna work, right? <laughs> Atomic bombs coming. <laughs> Find some particle board. Let's get underneath it. We make really dumb decisions out of fear. And a lot of it is we don't trust God that he's going to provide. But Abraham has seen it time and time again. And now he knows to trust the Lord that he's going to provide. And God does provide. And so much of our anxiety and things like that hang on this, our fear that God will not provide. That he won't give us what we need and what he gives will not be enough to supply our need. And yes, you might know want for a while. 
But if you're his, he will not let his righteous be forsaken. Do we trust God to provide? In some, all of this test, God uses tests to show us where we are and to show us really the genuineness of our faith. First Peter six and seven. First Peter one six and seven says this: In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that why have you? Why do you have these trials? So that the tested genuineness of your faith. More precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Your faith is more precious than gold. Gold is trading high right now, friends. Make a lot of money if you got some gold. But faith is more, more precious. And that you may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so here's the deal. Test. Test the genuineness of our faith so we can see where we are. God tests us and refines our faith because our faith is more precious than gold because our faith connects us to him. And so here's what we see here is that God is working in test to show us where we are. And if we're found fa- failing or fault at fault... We return to the Lord and He strengthens our faith. We're renewed. He shows us where we are. Because our faith needs to be seen to be genuine. Finally, why does God bring tests in our life? It's to provide us with the opportunity to show our sincere faith. Let me say that again. Why does God bring tests? It provides us with the opportunity to show our sincere faith. And to show God is worthy. James, the book of James, we're going to be quoting it a whole bunch in this message, is because James makes a big allusion and talks about Abraham a lot in the New Testament book of James. In fact, in Genesis 2, 21 through 23, it says this, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And I want you to note this, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. First off, let me note something. James is talking about a different type of justification than Paul. Paul's talking about righteousness coming through faith. And by that I mean this. Abraham believed God's promises and Because of that, he was made right before God. Now, his faith was shown to be mature or complete by his actions. Just like we've talked about this many times. You could say, Matt, I believe you. Matt, I believe you that that you're here for our safety. Okay? But if I yelled, fire! And you didn't move. You know what that would show? You don't believe me. The completed act of faith is seen in our actions. You get that? Life is the crucible that shows our faith to be genuine. And that's exactly what he's saying here about Abraham in verse 22. You see, the faith was active along with his works. Faith was completed or brought to maturity by his works. And so here's what the test happens. Abraham could have said all day, I believe you, God, I trust you, God. It was in this test that his Full trust was seen and completed. What I mean by that is he, would, he got the chance in a test. You get the chance to show that your faith is real. Can you see faith? Can you see it? 
You might can see its actions, but you can't see it. Like, that would be cool if you could look at somebody and they got like a part of their body was like, oh, yeah, you can, look, you got the faith dimple. Or like the faith mole. Okay? Yeah, you got faith. We see it right there. It's on the back of your neck. You got a lot of faith, dude. That's huge. It's like a golf ball. You might need to get that checked. That might not be faith, okay? That would be cool if you could see it. But how is faith seen? In our actions. It's brought to its maturity. It's there and it's enough. We, we come to God and we're made right with God through faith in God, especially in Jesus Christ now that we've had the full revelation. That makes us right. But our faith is brought to maturity and shown to be true in our test. And that way we can actually have the opportunity to show our faith is real and genuine. So a test provides you with the opportunity to show your sincere faith. It provides you with a way to tangibly show your faith to be real. And some of you are saying, man, God, I don't want to show this again and again. It's tough to show these things, and I get that, but it's in these times where you're worshiping God through your actions and showing your faith to be real. Abraham showed his faith to be real when he raised the knife to what was most precious to him. It was brought to maturity when he had to lay his most precious thing down and say, God, I trust you more. It provides us with the opportunity to show a sincere faith, and it shows that our God is worthy. Our God is worthy of our best and everything and and the thing most precious to us. You know why? There's going to be, this happens, and thousands of years later, there's going to be a man named Jesus on a hill. He is the one and only Son of God. Remember? Isaac, your son, your only son whom you love. Jesus, the Son of God, the only begotten, the completely unique, the one who has never sinned, the one who is loved by the Father. There was a son on a hill about to die in both situations. For Abraham, a substitute came, a ram, so he did not have to kill his own son. But God the Father found no substitute other than his son, who was a substitute, who would take the place of all our sin, And on that cross, God would not stay his hand, but allowed his one and only son to be crucified as the the substitute. And that son of God, Jesus, perfect, never sinned, was crucified in a criminal's place. A cross he did not deserve. A cross was bound for Barabbas, not Jesus. And in doing that and hanging there, the innocent Lamb of God was a substitute for all who believe, bearing sin in your place that you might have life. And our faith shows him to be worthy because he's worthy. He laid down his son's life. His son laid it down, and he had him killed so that we might have life. If that God is not worthy of being greater 
and being shown in our faith and being shown in our sufferings. I don't know what is. He is that God. He is worthy. And it is in our tests and our faith that we show our faith in him who is worthy of our faith. He is worthy. He is worthy because he did not turn his hand away. And the father crushed the son that we might have life. He is worthy. So he is worthy of your best things. He is worthy of all your preciousness. He is going to do right by you. Because he crucified his son that you might have life. He's going, he is worthy and trustworthy to provide for you. Because he crucified his son for you. He can be trusted with the most precious things. Because he sacrificed the most precious thing for you. He is worthy. He is worthy. He is worthy. And what we're going to do is just take a moment. If you would bow your head and close your eyes, I just want you just to stay in this moment. The band's going to come up. We have to sing in response to this. We have to sing. So if you would, just take a moment, and I want you to ask yourself these questions that we pose today. Do you love the gift or the giver more? Do you love the gift or the giver more? Do you trust God with what's most precious to you? Do you trust God with what is most precious to you? Do we trust God to provide? It's a good time to turn from your sin and turn to the Lord. He is good. He is so good. Father, as we come and sing, may our singing and our worship, may it be full of surrender and repentance and a joy and a marvel at the Son, Jesus. God, you're so good to us. Just let us sing in response to you. You are worthy. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and glory and honor forever and ever. Amen.